0: What's up? Welcome to another edition of the Barton and Bud show. We're excited to be back. We are sitting here um, fresh off of NFL draft weekends, maybe even more exciting than ever, considering there's really not much else going on right now. We finally got some substance to chew on over the weekend. It's a huge weekend for us in the recruiting industry, so I hope this show doesn't feel too self-indulgent, but man, it's time to look back and see how we did reminisce a little bit about some of these guys uh but first bud how's it going man how's quarantine life
1: it's, it's not too bad man you know just kind of every day is the same I, I put my trash out on the wrong day uh last week and i just a, a day early and like not better like, a better day
0: early than a day late
1: that's true yeah yeah that, that, if you do it a day late you catch some catch some hell for that uh no it, it was good man it was uh it was solid i was just like oh well i guess today's a wednesday and not a tuesday but uh I, Draft was great for us. I mean, obviously, like, we needed some content to talk about at 24-7 sports, and so that was that was pretty solid. I was pretty fired up to work a weekend, and, uh, and like, it was fun to watch. Like, I was actually kind of into it.
0: Yeah, I was big on the new. Like, the, the, the quarantine, I, I thought, actually made for more compelling TV because, like, I thought that was awesome that GMs were making picks with their six-year-old kid on their lap. I, I thought it was fun to see these guys – hundred of them, however many they had their videos in their house around their family, not in some some green room with a bunch of suit and ties. But but guys just just sort of settled in, hunkered down at home with with the people that are important to them. Like I, I, all that stuff resonated with me. So I, I, I enjoyed the draft as I always do. But and we'll talk about it a little bit, but especially this year, because it was a it was a good one for, for us at 24 seven It was a good one for the entire recruiting industry um so we'll we'll dive into all of that but first as always thanks for the reviews on itunes thank you for the ratings uh that's important give us a five-star review give us a write something in there anything as long as you got a five-star next to it that helps us uh continue to find some traction and, and grow this podcast yeah man so we have two we want to want
1: to shout out here thanks to uh is it guillaume 752? It's G-U-I-L-L-A-U-M-E 752. Uh, First time listener of Bud, longtime listener and fan of Barton. These guys have great chemistry. I'm a loyal cover three guy. Discovering this pod has been a great way to round out my college ball content. Love the thought that has been put into the different segments so far. If only he saw us today, we put about 10 minutes into this. But we just had so much to talk about today. Like it was just it was just picking and choosing. It was easy. Uh, keep up the great work. So very much appreciate that. Also, uh, shout out Tall Waters for his five star. Mentioned similar things. Uh, longtime Cover Three guy and and enjoying Barton and Bud so far.
0: We're merging the Cover Three uh, fan base with the Nullcast fan base. It's just like a meeting of, of of two. It's like a you know two parties hanging out at the same bar. All of a sudden, there's a little bit of you know they converge a little bit, and and all of a sudden the party gets 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 even bigger. I like it. Do you
1: remember in Ninja Turtles? Two, when, uh, when Shredder drinks, the, drinks all the ooze and he just becomes like Super Shredder. I mean, that's you combine those two audiences. Like, that's just kind of... Like, you're, you're bursting through the dock and, and, uh, and no looking back, so...
0: Strong illusion there.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, when we get to 247 five-star reviews, we will do a special listener appreciation mailbag episode. Uh, so, you can drop some of those questions there in, in, the, uh, in the review section of Apple Podcasts and uh, hit us up with those and when we get there we'll drop the show and so uh pretty exciting draft for us to talk about here and and just so much we'll see if we can pack it all into this show but I need to start with the congratulations to you uh who you went out you were bold you chose more guys than I did as far as your draft locks game that we played and Barton Simmons comes down and nails what'd you go 19 for 19 I think you you had Kale- Kalevan Chasen you had Patrick Queen you had Jordan Love as stone cold locks to go in the first round let's not pretend that you were at all uh lacking confidence about those (laughs) and uh we we both got all of ours right and you were rewarded because you were more bold as as the game that's kind of a limit of the game
0: that's right that jordan love was ultimately i think what it boiled down to the packers taking a quarterback in the first round a heavily scrutinized move a heavily heavily criticized move from folks that uh know the Packers needs a lot better than I did. So uh, fortunate for uh, Lafleur and those boys to, to go ahead and get that job done because I, I was worried about Jordan love. I was a little bit nervous about him slipping. Um, I know that the, the draft Knicks can fall in love with arm talent every once in a while and uh, maybe his senior year wasn't going to cut it for him. But fortunately for me, he got picked and, uh, and that, that, that was ultimately the difference.
1: That, that was fun. We'll have to we'll have to do that every year because it really does kind of make you think a little bit uh, about like, how many guys are absolute locks to go in the first round, and it's
0: usually fewer than you think. So,
1: also a pretty good day for the uh, for the recruiting industry.
0: Yeah, very much so. I think. I mean, you did a whole story on on the industry, and and I'm going to get into who who won within the industry, but industry wide, I actually go through a um, a process where I actually. Basically, grade every pick in the draft, uh, and with every pick, I determine which site in the industry was most accurate uh, in terms of not not highest, but just most accurate, closest to where the guy actually got picked. And if no one in the industry had a four star or better grade on a player, I, I I just basically call it an industry miss because whether you're a high three star or low three star. You're a three star, and uh, and for that, I'm I'm, I'm not going to reward you for be, being a little bit better than the others. So, with that as my sort of my, my my guide to this, it was pretty startling to to realize like, and you probably found this in 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 your research too, bud, but within the first three rounds, so and those are basically the the no brainer guys because you could get to round four through seven, and all of a sudden it's really about Eye of the beholder. It's about you know a, a guy getting drafted in the fifth round, maybe off the board for half the teams in the league. Like it's just about needs, uh, personal preference, whatever. Like those are guys that can be a little bit more um, substituted for along the way. Uh, but the top 100 guys, everyone was pretty much going to pick at some point. And through the top 100, it was pretty pretty startling how many guys were were ranked highly um, based on my my research 66% of the top 100 was ranked as a 5 or a 4 star prospect by at least one of the three major networks and the and and you know you may be saying well that's that's a pretty broad net you know congratulations but i think it's a fa- it's a fair way to look at it in the sense of at least somebody thought this kid was really good like he wasn't a nobody he wasn't some anonymous player that slipped through the cracks Typically, if one guy's a four or five star, he's usually like a high three star for someone else. So most of these guys, uh, better than 65 percent of them were were acknowledged somewhere along the way as by someone as being pretty dang good and probably going to play in the NFL. And so I, I think in terms of just the the, the macro perspective of sort of uh, recruiting rankings, that, that's a pretty good representation of uh, the, the industry starting to 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 hit this pretty well. So there are typically 350 four and five stars combined,
1: right? If you out there think that you can go and predict the what 2025 draft, the top 100, given 350 chances right now or come February, I'll, I'll take that bet. Straight up odds. And if I get enough of y'all, I'll, I can go ahead and retire from 24-7 sports because that is really so much tougher to do than anybody thinks, right? And, and folks out there, are like, oh, you guys just follow the offers and blah blah blah. And look, uh, you'd be a moron not to actually use the data that is offers, right? Like, why would we ignore that? If, if you're working on on Wall Street and you know, so a very respected venture capital firm invest in a startup, you're not going to be like, oh no, I'm going to keep my opinion the exact same on that guy as what it used to be. Uh, so, I yes, yeah, some additional stats I found here. Uh, so four and five stars make up only about 7% of D1 signees, right? So that's FBS scholarship guys, obviously, and then the few FCS scholarships that are out there, they obviously have a lot, of few, or, you know, a lot fewer. They were 66% of the first round. So the, your first rounders, 66% of them came from a pool of, of players that we have identified as just 7%. I mean, that's that's pretty nuts. The vast majority of your players out there are going to be your... your unrated kids who actually sign scholarships two stars and three stars i mean that's 37 percent of kids are three stars 35 percent are two stars 21 percent are unrated but actual scholarship signees just seven percent are four and five stars so it is really tough to do that and and i've i've tracked this for i mean gosh almost a decade now well before i worked for any of these recruiting services and I think this is the best draft that we've ever had as a recruiting industry overall for, for that reason, but also the highest average star rating ever of the first round at 3.75, which is uh, a good bit higher than it's ever been. The previous high was 3.65, so we went up like a full tenth, which is really impressive. And then also, I, I don't necessarily consider a three-star a miss quite like you do. I mean, I, I understand the logic behind it, and we want to improve it, right? We want to have every kid who goes in the first round at least be a four- or five-star there's some three, like the numbers wise, that's really hard. What really bothers me is if we we throw a two star or an unrated on a kid who shows first round potential. And, and I'm like, why, why did we miss, you know, on that guy? Uh, this year, only one player in the first round was a zero, was an unrated kid or a two star. And that was Brandon Ayuk, who had no offers because he had no grades, right? Which is why he had to go to junior college. And then we correctly rated him, or, well, maybe incorrectly, but we actually put a rating on him once he went to junior college so highest average star rating ever for the first round and then also uh the fewest number by far of two star or unrated players in the first round Uh, to me that's that's a pretty big win
0: yeah um i think it's you know because i think it ultimately you have to Yes. I mean, it feels good from an industry standpoint to be able to throw that in the face of, of, of the folks that say stars will matter or whatever. Um, but I also think it's representative of just the information available uh, in the space, whether that be film, testing numbers, track and field data, like all this stuff is just so accessible now. Um, and, and look, the reality is schools are doing a better job of finding these guys as well. I, I think uh, the the better the recruiting industry is doing, um, that means the better the the sort of FBS power five type of programs are doing and producing these guys because the the Tristan Wirfs of the world is, is are going to Iowa. They're not they're not going to northern Iowa. Um, and, and part of that is because the the and I'm not saying Iowa. I mean, Iowa typically finds those guys. But so maybe he's not the best example, but a Brandon Iuke is going to Arizona State out of junior college instead of Northern Arizona, um, and so I think that it's it, it's just getting, and, and I am I'm anxious to dig in and find out, you know, which of these programs really are doing the best job of evaluating beyond just taking the fives and the four stars because that's the next evolution is is not only, you know, are you taking players beyond the four or five star range, but when you take them, you know, what do they become? I think it's so interesting. To look at the examples of players like, you know, this this past class, um, Jackson Smith and Jigba was recruited by Ohio State and ended up as the number two receiver in the country. So that's going to ultimately, you know, I expect him to play in the NFL and ultimately Ohio State is going to look good for that. But people are going to say point at Ohio State and be like, look, Ohio State, of course he's going to the NFL. They took the number two receiver in the country. They can just out recruit people but the nuance there is that Ohio State identified Jackson Smith and Jigba when he was a 3 star and and the the and I think prioritized him in that way and then as he rose in the ranks and as people more eyes got on him his his stock rose i think a similar case could be made for the evaluation that Notre Dame did in Kyle Hamilton a future first round draft pick uh, Kyle Hamilton was a 3 star and had good junior film but Notre Dame made him a priority knowing that look at this long bodied kid look at his look at the way his frame could fill out look at the way he moves with those long limbs uh let's see what he becomes and then the senior film is just like ridiculous off the chart stuff and at that point he was already a notre dame guy and so i think that's sort of the next step because we're we're getting it right but we have the we have the um benefit of time to get these kids right by february Colleges don't have that benefit. Colleges have to get it right when they offer them, when they take the commitments. And then if their stock dips or, or rises, that's on them. they got to either take the kid or cut them loose. And so it, it, it's really interesting to see how these teams are going to navigate that sort of thing and who does a good job when you really get in the weeds of it that way.
1: So let's get into this as well. I, obviously, your article today, your scorecard for the industry, 24-7 sports was the winner for those who haven't read it yet, exactly how did we do it? And I use we—I mean, kind of liberally here because I wasn't on the team back back in you know twenty sixteen, twenty seventeen when these ratings were being assessed to these high school recruits. But how did twenty four seven Sports separate from the rest of the industry and get the dub?
0: So first of all, and again, just to reiterate, the way this was graded out, basically it was a, a scoring system that gave uh, uh, you know you you get points for. Having the the close most accurate ranking, if if uh, and and then, you know least accurate ranking, obviously you get you uh, the the points diminish from there. Um, and so, every player was graded, uh, and if no one had them ranked the fourth or better, you he, he sort of pass on them. So I think there's about a hundred and I think 117 or something players had a grade from at least somebody. Um, and and again, there were 70 of the top 107 had a grade by at least someone. So that that was. You know things dipped in the in the later rounds um but i gave bonus points for having a top 32 guy ranked in the top 32 go in the first rounds and i and I gave penalties to uh, a, a a guy that was ranked outside the four-star range who others had as a four star and I think for for us like where we really hit and this is something that is i'll give you a few examples of our big wins. so i think in the first round uh, a big win that we had was the quarterbacks one, it was it was Joe Burrow having him as a, the highest ranked inside the top two four seven, uh, and and that was that was even we didn't even really get a chance to see him, and I th- and I would argue maybe if if we were ranking today we would even rank him even higher because we have further prioritized efficiency production and been less concerned about sort of what the raw talent looks like like what are you doing on the field is the most important thing we kind of took that a little bit from Cliff Kingsbury. That's been a big emphasis of Cliff Kingsbury when he's evaluated the quarterback position. And that's been something that is is has really proven to be a good indicator. Burrow was off the charts in terms of that stuff. We just didn't have the confidence to go higher than we did because we hadn't had a lot of exposure to him. So Burrow was a win. Tua Tungabailoa was a win. I I, I remember thinking back, making Tua a five-star kid. We caught a lot of heat for that, uh, particularly because Jake Fromm wasn't a five-star. And Tua was small at the time, and that at that point Kyler Murray hadn't been drafted yet. And being six foot ish isn't ideal, but Tua had these big hands. He was uh, had these incredible intangibles, and he was awesome at the Army All American Bowl. And so, uh, you know, we sort of we we bet on that. And 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 I think, frankly, the more you can dig into leadership and intangibles at the quarterback position, the better because. You know, we see busts every year, and a big part of that is just you know how how committed are those players um, because it takes incredible commitment at the quarterback position. And then the other one that I think speaks to from the the first round that speaks to sort of our direction in terms of how we look at guys is is Austin Jackson. Now, this was the first round that saw a lot of big-bodied offensive tackles get drafted, but Austin Jackson very much fits into the prototype. This is the USC offensive tackle as a guy that was young for his class. He was very long basketball player, three sport athlete, 55, 50 plus foot shot putter. So you have all these, um, these, these contributing athletic verifiers that you sort of have a better sense of who he is. And frankly, like his career wasn't necessarily always a no doubt five-star career, but even this draft, is like a projection on who we think he's going to be. Uh, and so that ultimately hit and we were sort of rewarded for, for taking that gamble on a guy that wasn't a polished product. Um, So, I mean, those are the first round guys that we, I think really won with there. There's, there's more that, that's I think speak like, like we, we, we started, I think that was the year in that 2015, 2016 area where we really started to try to like find these guys and go against the grain. If we needed to Dalton Keene was one we hit as a four star played quarterback, tested really well uh, played outside linebacker, tight end like everywhere for his high school. That's the versatility that you need to have at the tight end position. lecky Fotu, uh, one year playing football, was all state, played rugby before that, was 255 pounds, goes to Utah, red shirts, gets drafted as a 330 pounder. Like those are the type of trends now that we really want to have the expertise to dig into. And I think this is the first first class that we really bought into really selling out for those sort of trends. Quintez Cephas, fifth-round draft pick, uh, one year playing football in high school, but his basketball clips were off the chart. If you're not watching his basketball clips, you would never necessarily think he's a first-round or a, an NFL draft pick, but that stuff matters. And so um, I think that was, in terms of our hits, that that was where we started to get some wins this cycle. So...
1: It's interesting to me here, and this is not on, not on our outline, but we talk about projection, and it, it, there's certainly a different amount of projection needed at different positions, right? We talk about projecting less at quarterback, because, and, and I, I think the reason why we were able to do that now is because the offenses run in high school and college, the the gap in terms of of scheme is not quite what it used to be. You know, it used to be like. Even fifteen years ago, you got all these teams running wing T out there. It's like, all right, can this guy go play? And like now, no, man. Everybody runs a spread. Almost all these kids play seven on seven, so we don't need to project quite as much. And luckily for us, we're able to rely more on the data. If you're a fifty-five percent passer in high school, it's going to be a tough argument for me to put a four-star grade on that kid, unless the team around him is just absolutely horrid. You know, Um, that's that's interesting to me. Whereas tackle is a position that still involves a whole lot of physical projection. And, and, and you better, because sometimes the kids who are already 330 are, are maxed out. And if it is our goal, which it is here at 24-7, to project these kids from high school all the way through the league, because we're the league and, and the draft is how we are viewing our rankings, right? Like that, the league is sort of our, our check and balance here. Uh, we, we need to project significant upside with that tackle position. You know, we might do it a little bit differently if we were only concerned about college production. If we were only concerned about college production, I'd probably be in our, our rankings meeting standing on the table for some of these guys who have a little bit higher floor, but certainly a lot lower ceiling.
0: Well, and, and this is like I, I, I try to take the 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 opportunity every chance I get to 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 make sure that we hammer home what our philosophy is. And that's and in that sense, like I, I actually could kind of care less what these guys do in the NFL but i'm obsessed with where they're going to get drafted right because to me where they're going to get drafted is ultimately the the real only measurable metric of what their college career was like the only like the only actual objective way of of actually grading out how someone's college career fared i guess you i mean yes there are other ways you could you could go turn to production you could turn to just like all conference awards or something like that but I think those those fall short of what we're trying to accomplish in rankings, which is is evaluate for talents and ability, and in terms of and that's all the NFL is looking at talent and ability, based on what you did in college, like how how talented and capable do we think you are based on what you put on tape and what we know about you as a prospect, and so we use NFL GMs, NFL scouting departments, as the means to find a grade for those for those rankings, and so. I think you make a great point, and and I think it's it extends. It's it's even interesting to see it extend now into, like this will be this is what the third straight year we've had a Heisman Trophy uh, winner be drafted number one overall. Do you remember back when the Heisman Trophy was like a total kiss of death for NFL success? Like it was just it was just a given if you win the Heisman you're going to be a bust because what you need to do in college to be successful at the quarterback position is different from what you do in the NFL to be successful at the quarterback position. I think I think. You're like the no longer do you have to have a translator for what uh, a good quarterback looks like in high school versus college versus the NFL. Because, look, I'll be honest with you, I don't watch a lot of NFL based pure not because I don't want to, but because purely I don't have the time to watch all football day on Sunday, given the work we have to do plus Saturday and Friday obligations we have watching football as well. So, if I had to. If I if I was an NFL if I was trying to project a college kid to the NFL, and I had to sort of find a translator to tell me, well, what is is this work in an NFL system? I don't know. Like this is that, that that's 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 gone. That's like antiquated. Now all of a sudden, NFL is being forced to to accommodate these more spread style quarterbacks, and the spread is sort of filtered, trickled. I guess, up from high school to college and out of the NFL. And now they're just picking the best player. And it's refreshing because you don't have to act like it's some, you know, like you don't have to be bilingual in terms of how you view these quarterbacks. It's just, hey, if if he he can be the best player on the field in high school, if he can be the best player on the field in college, he can probably be the best player on the field in the NFL too.
1: And that has changed so recently. I I remember I wrote a piece on – like, will could Jared Goff be the first air raid quarterback to not be like a total bust? And all the elite eleven guys were like, "Man, Jared Goff's got the goods." And, and I still don't know if he does. Like, it seems like McVeigh has to read the defense for him and call his play and all that stuff. Belichick did to him that all, all the other teams started to copy, where they you know they shift late once the headset clicks off. But the point is, like, Jared Goff's not a bust, right? Like, he may not be amazing, but now these air raid guys are. They're accepted, and like it's okay because these teams are incorporating more and more concepts, like you said. Now, after our ad break here, I want to get into what I've found over about a decade of looking at the the rankings of the when we miss as an industry. What are the most common buckets that these kids that we missed on fall into?
0: The time has come for drag queens to save the world.
1: RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars is back on Paramount+. And for the first time ever,
0: I want you to use your talent for good for a change.
1: (laughs) Eight iconic queens are competing for the charity of their choice. This is how you do drag. Who will slay it forward, win cash for their favorite cause, and a coveted spot in the Drag Race Hall of Fame. RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. New season streaming May 17th exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
0: Terms of life. All
1: right, Bert, we're back. And so now I want to go over some categories that I typically find when we miss on a kid, it's usually not just a bad evaluation of the kid's skills. Occasionally it is. I'm not saying we're immune to that, but typically there are some some categories that these that these misses fall into. And I want to talk about like are these misses knowing these categories, can we get better over time as an industry at ranking these players when we when we kind of think about in our head, all right, are there anything here that we should probably do differently because of this? So I'm going to go down these and maybe we can kind of think of an example or two. From prior years, and I know just in my head, just some of the ones you were reading out uh, are are ones that we actually probably already accounted for with, with some of our wins. But the first to me would be academic issues. Uh, a lot of colleges, if they don't if they won't touch a kid because he's a you know academic risk, he's definitely going to go to junior college. Uh, then he may get no offers, and it's not often that we put ratings on a kid who, by the end of the process, still has no offers. So, Brendan Iuke would be the prime example here. He was the only unrated player in round one. Uh, another kid who actually did get a, an offer late would be uh, Justin Jefferson, right? Because he finally got his stuff in order, but he didn't get his his stuff in order until well after the the rankings were finalized. Correct? Like he didn't get well his, after
0: signing day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was so, it was the summer before the. It was like August before the season when he got eligible.
1: His offers were at Northwestern State. And Tulane, and I'm guessing if you can't get into LSU, you probably can't get into Tulane. So I, I kind of question whether he actually could have gotten into Tulane. So we, we'd basically be looking at Justin Jefferson as a kid who has Northwestern State, right, as his loan offer, uh, and then he gets the, the the grades or whatever, and or was it a test score? I forgot what it was. And he ultimately is able to get into LSU. Academics are one. Like, do you think we should reconsider how we evaluate kids? who don't have grades.
0: So Justin Jefferson is a great test case to, to sort of dig into, to, so people understand because when, when I explained Justin Jefferson as he had a low rating because he was a academic was considered to be a likely academic casualty. People are like, well, that's just lazy. You should have just ranked him in high school. I get that. And yes, I I do think that the, the correct answer there is yes, we should. <clears throat> if a kid is that good, he should have a four star grade, probably though outside the top two, four, seven, because his, his sort of um, value as a prospect is not as high as others who are confident will get in. That said, from our perspective, and we're trying to rank 4000 plus kids. If there's a kid who you think is likely going to junior college or, or almost a lock to go to junior college, it's just not a guy that that we prioritize to spend a lot of time evaluating because there's so many other kids to dig into. And so you just sort of set him aside and say, you know what, like we're going to deal with him when he gets to junior college. Um, uh, and that's sort of what happened with Justin Jefferson. Cause we certainly knew who his brothers were who played at LSU. We knew he was productive, but it wasn't ever really, no one ever really made a point to watch his film and to give him a, a full evaluation because everyone assumed it was just going to be a junior college guy. We would evaluate in, in a couple years. So, uh, yeah, I think the answer is we do need to um, make sure those guys have a fair and proper grade. But it realistically, a lot of those guys are still going to slip through the cracks based on just purely, uh, you know, us not having the attention span and the bandwidth to deal with every grade risk in the country. You know, like a Corey Davis, for example, who went to Western Michigan, who was a, a, a high grade risk. You know, w- there's a reason no one ever paid much attention to him because he wouldn't get any offers because we didn't. No one thought he was going to get into school. And then Western Michigan gets him in late and sure, ideally we get an evaluation on him and get a really high grade on him. but in practice, that's a tough thing to accomplish.
1: Absolutely. And of course, that's not the only reason why Brandon Ayuk uh, was, was unrated. We have some other reasons as well, which we'll get to later. Uh, So my second one here that I've discovered over the years is football was not the player's primary sport throughout the majority of his high school career. Right? So a lot of examples of this, uh, you know Josh Allen, the defensive end the Jaguars took, who I'll probably use several times in this because he checks almost every bucket. Uh, he was a, mostly a basketball kid for a lot of his career, and Quintez Cephas, who I, I know you you brought up as well, would, would fit here, right? He played football for one year. He was primarily a, a hoops guy.
0: Yeah, and I and yeah Quintez Cephas and Leckie Fotu both were, you know, really jumped on the scene their their senior year. And and so that's the type those are the type of players that it takes senior uh, due diligence to to dig up because otherwise, I mean, it's so tempting to just move on to the next class. But I, I think to find these guys, you have to really dig into senior season. So we've we've actually like even this cycle in our recruiting, we, we actually were a little behind on getting the the class of 2021 and 22 to 22 rankings out because we spent so much time in the fall digging into the class of 2020 and making sure we didn't miss anybody. And so I think that's the way you have to do it. I think from a college end, that's the way you have to do it. I think if you are filling up your class to accommodate yourself for the December signing period, and you don't do any work on senior seasons, I think you're doing yourself a disservice as evaluators because so many of these guys come onto the scene late and have their their big seasons as seniors.
1: Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And I think the temptation to move on is greater than ever with, with with the onset of the early signing period. You know, um, additional factors here as far as football not being primary sport. If we think the kid is going to go pro in another sport, sometimes like that could be a consideration. If, if the dude's like a lock to be a you know first round baseball pick or or a first round NHL pick, well, if he goes plays another sport, the chance we're going to get him right and him being in, in the NFL draft is pretty low, right? Most dudes are not going to go first round in the NFL draft if he's actively playing another sport. Not that it never happens, but certainly it's a consideration. We also see that those guys who play other sports oftentimes have, not not guys who play other sports, but guys whose football is not their primary sport, sometimes they have potential that was not evident to us, especially watching their football tape like you mentioned with Cephas, but even sometimes if they're playing another sport, we later find out, damn, like, their best sports actually football. And and we might have seen this a little bit earlier, like when they were in high school, if they had played a little bit more football. Not that we're anti-multi-sport guys, because I think we all love the multi-sport guys for sure, because the versatility and the other athletic abilities that it helps unlock for you. But there's a lot of factors there when you have a guy playing multiple sports, although we we definitely prefer that you do. The next one I have is... And, and just to, to, oh, sorry, to, to, to
0: dig in on that a little bit too. So, um, yes, I agree. Like... Multi sport is we actually uh, love multi sport and, and and like the multi sport athletes, and, but it's at some. But the point is, sometimes they're a little bit harder to identify. Kahl War, like last year, a, a a really big chunk of the tight ends drafted last year were walk ons. Uh, I can't remember the number. It wanted, it was maybe like three or four of those guys were walk ons, um, or maybe it's something like you know, the last four years. There's been at least one walk on draft to the tight end in the first five picks or something. Like uh, uh, Cahill Waring, who was the San Diego State kid. Like he played, I want to say he played like basketball, like volleyball, water polo, just everything. He was a walk-on, played football, I think his senior season. And then, you know, so many traits or, or, or skill sets are involved in playing the tight end position that then like he can pull on all of those and develop. It's so much more rapid of a rate. So it's hard to dig that guy out in the front end. But on the back end, you know, he's a guy that that is really valuable. I think in this 2021 recruiting class, Jake Ratzlaff is a really interesting name. But you know, we talked about this kid in our um, in our rankings meetings here recently. Uh, you know, we ranked Jordan Adams uh, a, a five star coming out of the 20 I guess that was 19 maybe class. Uh, he went on to get drafted in the first round of the of Major League Baseball draft, and he is you know he's probably never going to play football again because he's that good in baseball. Jake Ratzlaff is an interesting one in that we think he's a really good player out of Minnesota in football as a linebacker and, and as a four-star level kid, probably a pretty highly rated four-star kid in our eyes. But he may never see a college football field because he's probably going to get drafted in the first few rounds of the NHL draft. So that's that's a place where you know we're trying to guard against getting tripped up by a guy like that. But the reality is someone may not view him as a, a high-value prospect from a ranking standpoint because of the NHL thing. And then, you know, he decides to play, and all of a sudden he could be a first-round pick.
1: Yeah, just a little behind the scenes here. We had our rankings call, like I think, two weeks ago, and all of us kind of sat around and we're like, hey, uh, if it's baseball, we we know the perfect game, guys, right? Like, we know who we could go over there and ask, like, how good is this guy in baseball really? And they can generally give you a pretty good range. Like, this kid tells me he's going to be a first-round pick, and the baseball scouts we know tell us, "Eh, not so much, right? Like, he might be a third or fourth-round pick. He's pretty good, but he's not... Likely to be a number one type pick in hockey. We were like, uh, anybody know any hockey scouts? Like how good is this kid really going to be? Cause I mean, we just don't cross into the hockey realm that much, but somewhat because of when the sports are played. But, uh, I think there's a little crossover here from hockey to this next category. And that is, uh, if you are a player from a foreign country, so there's all kinds of questions about the level of competition you face, uh, you know, we oftentimes lack the ability to see you, especially see you in person. I don't know uh, if if Luke's going to approve our expense reports to go over to Europe all that frequently uh, to see kids.
0: I, I I got to, I got to sneak over there last spring. It was pretty, it was pretty awesome. But I, even even over there, you know, uh, Notre Dame side, this kid Alexander Rensberger, who I hey look, I got to get over to to to, um, uh, to Amsterdam and see him in person, and he looked unbelievable. But he didn't even work out. And his film is playing against a bunch of nobodies, and like he looks like a million bucks. He could be drafted in the first round. but ultimately, there was really no way for us to know who who he was, what you know what he looks like. Um, so yeah, like uh, we I'd love to get over there every year let's let's keep it rolling.
1: um so the next one here is if you were a full year younger than your peers, right? So Daniel Jones uh, is my most recent example of this. Daniel Jones uh, was, I think eighteen months younger. Uh, than his peers, uh, he I don't think he turned 18 until right before he enrolled at Duke. So if you are that much younger than the average, and I usually just use like December 31st as the average birth date or whatever on that, um, but if you're that much younger than your peers, it can sometimes be difficult to project just how much extra growth and potential you actually have compared to the other guys in your class. And this is something I actually do believe we could do better as an industry i know some of the guys who scout baseball and they always refer to these kids by their age first right they're like he he'll he'll be and they use some kind of like state like agreed upon date you know like okay it's august 21st or whatever he's like he'll be such and such age on this you know by this date so everybody in their mind they have kind of like a, a universal standard for how old the kid is it's like his baseball age and that's something i think we could probably do a better job of internally and saying hey this kid who's really young, he might actually, maybe he could be a ninety-four instead of a ninety-three, just because we we have to account for the potential that he continues to blow up.
0: Yeah, and we've tried to incorporate that a little bit in our in our recent discussions too, and yet at the same time, I think uh, even in, in your backyard, it's there's some great examples of guys where you need to be careful <laughs> not to be not to be uh, uh, take your eye off the ball because you know Calvin Ridley I think is one that was like 19 years old as a senior first round pick Calvin Benjamin he may have been 20 as a senior I don't know, he he was old yeah he, he was had a first round years. pick <laughs> so you know those those guys can still hit too uh, you know I think if as much as anything it's 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 more about like Calvin Benjamin was it wasn't like oh there's no more growth potential with Calvin Benjamin hmm that's a red flag it's like no he was already a freakish specimen. So like, what do we care that there's no more growth potential or Calvin Ridley? Like uh, how much better is he going to get? Well, it doesn't matter. He's already like as as polished as we've seen coming out of high school. So who cares if he's old? Um, whereas, you know, maybe it should be a concern if you see the, I don't know, the 215 pound six, one quarterback that looks like he's had, you know, been, been drinking a six pack for on Saturdays for the last five years and he's 19 years old, and it's like, all right, this guy's starting to look a little fratty, and wh- like, how much should we expect him to continue to develop in high school? I think it's a lot of it's positionally and about making sure you're understanding like where the, the body type and, and projection needs to come and, and how important it needs to be.
1: Absolutely. So my next one here, and this is one that realistically we try to account for but if we were to project guys to do this, we would probably all lose our jobs. And that is guys who gain at least 15% of their body weight in college and keep the same level of quickness. And so I looked at this just on the 2019 draft. Chris Lindstrom, Garrett Bradbury, Noah Fant, Darnell Savage, Andre Dillard, Titus Howard. Titus Howard went from 225 to 322 and became an offensive tackle instead of a quarterback, which is you know, pretty, pretty good growth in college there. Uh, marquise brown went from 130 to 168 so almost 30 percent body weight increase there well still obviously keeping his great speed and an lj collier as as well this is by far the most popular category when when a guy exceeds his rating by a whole lot and we miss on him because we put a unrated or or two-star grade on him if i had to bet on just one category it's this overwhelmingly it's guys who, who got so much bigger in college and we we try to evaluate frame, but yet, like man, fifteen percent growth while while keeping your your athleticism is like two seventy to three fifteen. That's not easy.
0: Yeah, the, the we have we've definitely tried to be more open to that, and and particularly at offensive line, uh, Chris Lindstrom is an example of a guy like that one. Looking back, I can see a scenario where we where I can say, you know what, we we should have identified him. Uh, because the film is awesome. And in fact, if you look at the way we ranked the 2020 class, Nate Anderson's heading to Oklahoma and was sort of our Chris Lindstrom prototype. We ranked him really high, really early. He was a 250 pound guy early on. He moved over from defensive line to offensive line as a junior. That was his first year playing offense. And he's like he when he goes to an All-American game, he gets overwhelmed a little bit by these big guys. But we saw Chris Lindstrom film. We saw Nate Anderson's film. We were like, you know what? Like, there's a lot of similarities there. We should rank this kid high. Expect him to to blow up. And and you know, Oklahoma ends up taking him, and we'll see what happens there. But so so there's there is absolutely an effort by us to now like see a 260 pound offensive lineman, 270 pound offensive lineman, and our eyes perk up rather than us get discouraged that he's not big enough. Because I think that's a flawed way of looking at it. But to your point, like there there's just guys, there's some guys we're just never in a million years gonna predict. Like we're just not gonna predict that average tight end Garrett Bradbury turns into the best center in college football.
1: What about receiver Josh Allen who went from 205 to 262 and switched positions?
0: There, exactly. Like yeah. that's not gonna happen. We're not gonna predict that Titus Howard, a high school quarterback, is gonna go and in year two and the like, move to tight end and then move to offensive tackle and be a first rounder out of Alabama A&M or wherever he was, Alabama state. So there's sums that we're just going to take L's on. And there's, this impossible to, 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 you know, we'll take a wizard to figure it out. But um, that's, you know, the, the idea is to hold ourselves to a standard that sort of forces us to try to find the guys that we have actually have a shot with. Absolutely. So a couple more
1: here, uh, injury. So if a player has limited film, this is something we run into in a couple of these categories, right? Like, limited film that we can actually evaluate it, one of the reasons why he might have limited film and, and thus sort of delayed development is if he was hurt a lot in high school right like khalil Mack was a miss by the recruiting industry because they did not pay enough attention i don't think to what he did as a senior but khalil Mack early on in his high school career was hurt a whole lot like he didn't have a good junior year or a, forget forget which year it was, but like he didn't play very much, right? There's a lot of guys.
0: Yeah, he didn't. I think he didn't play. I think junior year was his first year playing football, and then he got hurt, and right. so ultimately senior year was the only year of football he had on his resume. Darnell Savage, as well, the, the player
1: from Maryland, uh, fits in this category from from the prior draft. I know he he broke his femur early in his junior year, so he only ended up like first of all he lost that kind of year of development, and then he played some as a senior in where to go Maryland I think it was but uh like that's another example of, of that and just a lot of these kind of cross over into for whatever reason we're not able to get get enough film on the kid or not able to 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 account for like does this kid have more potential than we realize because he missed this time of development and can he recapture that right there's no guarantee that he can recapture
0: that that, that lost time sometimes they do sometimes they don't well look the the I mean um, I did a story for, uh, for CBS about sort of why, cause like you mentioned, there weren't a lot, a lot of two stars and undrafted that were expected to get picked. And so I was doing a story on sort of what happened with the three stars. Like, how do we miss on some of those guys? And Justin Herbert, um, is, is one example. And, uh, you know, Oregon fans were in my Twitter mentions being like, Oh, whatever. Y'all are just lazy. If you committed Alabama, you'd have made it out there to see him, whatever. Okay, like yeah, take your shots. But the, the reality is, Justin Herbert fits into the category you're talking about. He was actually injured as a junior. Really, senior season was the only real season of of, of um, uh, that we had to 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 go off of. He doesn't even get the Oregon offer until mid October, and yes, that is how we found out about him. We didn't know about him until the Oregon offer because his other offers were Montana State and Portland State before that, and. You know what? Like we are ultimately still a media company. We don't cover Montana State and Portland State. And so uh the the kid from Eugene with the only offer from Oregon pops up and yeah, we didn't we didn't send a jet out there to go see him and so that's on us, but you know, he was ranked as a high 3 star. We we you know, the film looked good. Um we, we certainly saw some tools, but the, sometimes you just got to sort of take your lumps and understand like it's going to be uh uh, yeah, we could have taken a projection there, but that, that means someone else that we know more about probably has to go to the three-star range, and uh, that's a that's a tough tough string to pull.
1: Absolutely. So uh, next one here is uh, it's all it's also kind of related to getting enough film on the kid and having a consistent sample to evaluate. If the kid transfers multiple times in high school, this can this can create issues for the recruiting industry because a you may have a different guy who is evaluating him in one region. And then another guy who doesn't necessarily know about him, evaluate him in another region. And there's so many transfers and kids move all over the country. It's not realistic to expect a team of like eight people to constantly shoot notes to each other. Hey, this, this kid who I have yet to put a grade on transferred out your way. Right? So let's use Josh Allen as an example. The, the defensive end who went to Jacksonville and I use him just because there were so many good examples that, of, of all these boxes. He checked. He's in New Jersey as a freshman. Okay. He's playing receiver and, I think basketball primarily. He might have played a little receiver. So he would have been Brian Doan's kid. Then he goes down, moves to Alabama to live with, I think, his aunt or his grandma, and then doesn't play as a sophomore, right, because he's playing hoops. Then he plays, I think, as a junior, plays receiver in Alabama in a town of only 3,000 people, which we'll get to in a minute, and then transfers back up to Jersey uh, and, and plays a couple games of defensive end where a scout, or a, a high school coach who is related to one of the coaches or one of the analysts, I think it was, at the University of Kentucky, was like, "Hey, this kid we just played, he was playing defensive end, he tore us up because he was an opposing coach." You told his his brother, who was on Kentucky staff, like, "You have so, you have, and, and like if you move around a whole lot as, as a player, you may not have anybody to go to bat for you." You know, like this was an opposing coach who recommended Josh Allen, not not his own coach. You may not have anybody go to bat for you. You also like a lot of times putting up the film is on these high school coaches. And I'm going to clue you in on this something. If you're a high school prospect listening to us, if you transfer out of a high school coach's program, you may not be at the top of his priority list as far as getting his film put up. So that can cause issues. That's not an excuse. That's an area we can probably try to dig on more, you know, but just practically if you transfer multiple times in high school, that is something I've noticed over the years that it does increase your chance. I think of being
0: missed on slightly. For uh, sure, Josh next, Allen's a great example because Josh yeah. Allen had a great senior year. Like, there's if you just look purely at his his senior season, like there's no excuse for him to have been missed. But you're exactly right. Like, the reason he was missed as a senior is because no one really realized he was up there, and right. just, it would have taken some you know some, some due diligence to figure that out.
1: Uh, new to the sport of football, we already went over that kind of with with, with uh, Quintez Cephus. But if you haven't played football for that long. It's difficult for us to project exactly how much potential you might have because we don't really have a great baseline for where your game is currently at. Uh, remote or tiny high school classification, or if you play uh, eight-man, right? So Leighton Van Der Esch is obviously one of the uh, prime examples of this. He played eight-man football. We don't really evaluate a whole lot of eight-man football. It's just not. It's played kind of in like the Amer- American West and some of the Midwest for these very small towns. I I do see this pop up as a trend sometimes. If your town has less than 3,000 people or if your high school's enrollment is less than 500, it does seem like you have a little bit higher chance of being missed on. And that's probably just, honestly, a resource thing. You know, it's impossible to stop by all these high schools. You're going to try to play the efficiency game if you're an evaluator or if you're a college coach, right? Like, they're going to go to the high school that's more likely to have somebody. It's a numbers game. If you go to a high school with only 500 players, or not players, excuse me, but only 500 students, the chance that a player is there who can help you is rather low. It's not the most efficient use of your time. It also, and you could speak to this as well, like trying to evaluate film of some of these like 1B rural classifications, like there's still some high school teams that you and I can go out there and probably play on. And and I don't think we're anywhere near our playing shape, right? But like, I mean, some of these teams are just, you got 25 guys on the team, and most of the team's playing both ways. And it is hard to evaluate, but I, I do see that sometimes. And we've seen that with Daniel Jones. Uh, TJ Hawkinson w- was a good example of that. Darnell Savage was a good example of that. Josh Jacobs, actually, I think was a pretty good example. Or I, I DM'd with you last year. Remember for that article? It's like, wh- how did we miss Josh Jacobs? And the only real category he fit was that his high school had like 400 enrollment or something like that.
0: So I think this is really interesting too because um, I've talked to to personnel directors about this because it's cause it's, it's, a, it's something that is curious to me in terms of time allocation, resources, whatever, like whether it's worth it. Because as we were going through the draft, looking at the draft as, as things are coming off the board, we were texting <clears throat> with with some guys in our in our network talking about how all the all the Cali kids coming off the board weren't LA kids. And so, when you're thinking about, like, let's say you are—I don't know who you are—Utah or or um, Texas or something—you want to you want to say recruit California. I've got quotation marks up. And so, what's the best? What's the most effective way to do that? Well, you're going to go fly into L.A. and you're just going to hit 10 schools a day, rolling through L.A. And that's great. You're going to get a lot of of California exposure. You're going to see a lot of guys, and then maybe you can steal someone. But if the players that are getting drafted are from Bakersfield and Inland Empire and like all these a little bit off the beaten path <clears throat> sort of places where you where you can't just jump off the flight and, and, and hit a few schools and then get back on your airplane, but you have to actually sort of dig into to find these players, then what it, like then what does it really mean to be recruiting nationally? Like I wonder if teams that say are, are sort of recruiting Georgia <clears throat> in quotation marks, like does that really just mean you're recruiting Atlanta? And I'm not even knocking it as a as a strategy because maybe it's just not worth it to go try to like get down to Columbus, Georgia, or get down to Valdosta. Maybe Valdosta is a different uh, story, but like it's just the 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 net benefit of find of like taking the time to get to these rural areas is it really worth it? There's a kid in the 2020 class, Jalen Conyers, who we actually sort of tried to address in this category because he was from the middle of nowhere, uh, Grover, Texas, I think is where he's from, and it's basically like a six hour drive from anything and so and you're going so you're driving that six hours just to see him and then you're driving six hours back and so that's a day basically on the, a valuable recruiting time that a coach would have to spend to go evaluate him and recruit him and so is that is that worth it uh it, it probably isn't for a lot of coaches and which is why a lot of these schools or a lot of these kids might might find their way to a, a smaller program and then go kind of under the radar and get drafted high
1: absolutely and and i think there are areas like that in every state right like even in my state you know i'll I'll talk to some of these college personnel guys and like hey what you know why didn't you list my guy as far as like like you know your your top recruiters for this area i'm like well coach because your guy flies into tampa goes down to img probably goes back up to hard rock and then flies home he doesn't actually make the drive all the way down to like naples fort myers you know and, and it's it's there are areas in every state, and I think there are some some states that are, are almost entire states, right, to where, like, we were talking the other day, like, we're going to find a four or five star from North Dakota one day. Now, it may not be this year, but like eventually we will get one. Uh, but that that is a – that's something we have to be conscious of. And even if we identify the kid, like, we, it's so important to get him to a camp, which it's likely to be tougher for him to drive to a camp if he lives in the middle of nowhere, because the, the quality of competition – When you're watching his film, like I know there's kids out there that we watch, and you're like, "Man, this is really good." And we had it on the call the other day. You're like, "Hey, is anybody what what kind of competition is this kid playing?" It looks like he's playing a bunch of middle schoolers, and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's that's a private school by my house." Like he actually is kind of playing a bunch of really you know lackluster competition there. Um, And then the final one we have is position change in college, right? So this is something that. It sounds like a cop out on its face because all all kinds of guys change positions, but I'm talking about major position changes. Okay. So, not necessarily going from receiver to tight end, but like if you go QB to defensive line, right? Or receiver to defensive end or or something like that, right? Um, You know, corner to linebacker. Those are position changes that are A, they almost always correspond with you being one of those people who grew a lot more than we could have recently projected you to grow. But it's also not something that we frequently do. Like we'll have our our defensive back meetings and we'll say, okay, is this safety could he turn into a linebacker? We very rarely say, could this corner turn into a linebacker?
0: Yeah, no, I mean it's that's uh, again I think that goes back to just like what's predictable and what's not. Like we can't pre- like there's this, I mean <laughs> you can't predict that. Like yeah, that guy's not very that guy's not a very good corner. Well, he could be a great linebacker. Well, yeah. He ain't gonna be a linebacker. And then there you know he's a linebacker. So that's that's yeah, I mean that's a, that that's that takes the wizard I was talking about.
1: So uh those are, are the main categories that, that I usually ID each year. It's clear we can, you know, we already do try to incorporate some of these. Maybe we can try to incorporate some a little more, and there's some it's just we'll take the L because like the opposite if you tried to incorporate it and you started projecting like a crazy person, um, you'd take a much bigger L and you wouldn't have the top-rated recruiting service out there among the media outlets. So, uh, I wanted to touch on one thing here. I know we're kind of running a little bit long, but Shay Dixon of our LSU site had a pretty interesting catch.
0: So Shay, like everyone's talking about all the the freaks on LSU's roster, and rightly so. LSU's been recruiting at the top of college football, uh, but Shay sort of hit on something I think is is really compelling and brings up a few other talking points too. In the sense of so. Since I want to say since 2012, I don't have the tweet in front of me or the story in front of me, but since 2012, every recruit that was the last offer in LSU's class and the lowest ranked kid in LSU's class, typically those guys have been the same person. Um, I, I believe it's every one of those guys has gotten drafted. And I think that's fascinating for a few reasons. One, it brings up the idea that, you know, if, if a, if a program like LSU is taking a kid that's really low rated and that typically correlates to some really like a really poor offer list as well. Like just a just guy that doesn't have a lot of attention and national, uh, appreciation. They usually know something like there's something that they know, whether it was wor- typically it means they worked him out in camp and they sort of fell in love with them in that camp workout. Um, I talked to Jeremy Pruitt um, that for an interview that we'll have out uh, in a couple weeks about him offering DeAndre Baker, and when he was at Georgia and DeAndre Baker didn't have bad film as a junior, but he worked him out in camp, and he fell in love with him in that camp workout, and he acknowledged the film wasn't good as a junior, um, but the film improved as a senior, and then that was that was enough, and so like those sort of guys, I think a there's that sort of confidence from getting hands-on experience with them and B I think there is an element of I mean it sounds cliche but there I think there is a legitimately an element of like these guys come in and know nothing's going to be handed to them they know they're walking in with a group of five stars and four stars and they're the low man on the totem pole they got to work their tail off and so I think there's a chip in their sh- on their shoulder sort of element to it um and then finally I think like there is a real like you have to if if you are LSU and you're taking say a two star kid for an extreme example, there, there's like the environment around you of stars and ratings. You can say you know look look at that stuff, listen to that stuff, but it's still you know you're taking a kid that no one else knows anything about. You have to have added conviction on a kid like that. And I, I just think that that's really interesting that those guys have had such a high hit rate at a program like LSU, and it, it certainly also speaks to their uh, their development as well. There's no
1: doubt about it, and I also think now with the transfer portal, uh, there might be some strategy to this, right? Like there, there is some selection bias, like you said. They probably knew something, but now if you're a college program, you're already likely to be holding out more spots for potential transfers. You know, you, you may only take 23 instead of 25 guys on on signing day, just because you want to hold a spot or two open for for a potential transfer maybe that that fits into the strategy as well right like if you're monitoring the academics of a kid late like 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 a Justin Jefferson or you know, I'll I'll give you a kid uh who I remember from the class of 2019 right Howard Allen who was a a offensive tackle out out of Jacksonville and he didn't qualify his Twitter profile says he's in Liberty Missouri right now so whatever Juco is there maybe he's playing at at that Juco he was actually a kid we threw a, a an 87 grade on right like like physically he was off the charts. He just was not going to qualify at all. But like teams were, were watching him just to see if he would pull some kind of miracle down the stretch there, and he could have been another late-offer type guy. Do you think we'll see more of this as a strategy because teams are already holding offers open for transfer portal guys?
0: I think you may. I, I also think um, there is I, – I think you can – because like I said earlier about sort of evaluating senior stuff, so many schools – I mean, Ohio State's practically done with their 2021 class. They're 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 getting rolling on 2022 right now. Like, there's so can Michigan State or Michigan or somebody you know, find some senior riser while everyone else is filled up? Or Kentucky? Can they? You know, like I think that there's is going to be. I think there's a uh, an opportunity for schools that can really navigate senior seasons effectively. And that's ultimately like what those late offers come down to too. Like if, if you're getting a late offer from LSU, if you're the last guy offered, I tell you one thing it definitely means is that you had a great senior season. And it probably means you didn't have like the, whatever happened before that was, was low profile. And so I think there's an element of like identifying these guys as seniors and being able to hold out spots for these for these late risers there's no doubt about
1: it i think that's that's something we'll definitely um definitely continue to monitor but like our rankings pretty much lock what well before you know these guys ever get greenlit to commit you know so maybe it's something that we do in the final week of of a sweep of like hey is there anybody out there just ask the schools that you're like well, you're seriously hoping gets qualified that that we don't know about already I, I don't know how we adjust to that as an industry because we do we do lock our rankings when we do and then some of these guys aren't aren't getting greenlit to go ahead and commit until you know June, July, August.
0: Yeah, I think the other thing that I'm well, I've got some ideas too for uh, that we can we can talk I, I should probably, about shouldn't, all probably shouldn't brainstorm on pod, yeah. but I've all got right. some ideas for uh, for some ways to keep us keep us disciplined too and like making sure that we dig out some of these group of five guys as well. Um, it's, it's fun. Like this is to me, this is the most, that's the most fun part about the rankings. It's not to me. It's, it's really less uh, rewarding to, to sift through the five-star rankings. It's more rewarding to identify that James Morgan, who goes to Bowling Green should have been a, you know, is going to play in the NFL. And then he, you know, gets beat out at Bowling Green and then transfers to FIU and then has a mediocre career and gets drafted that is a win like that is one that I can feel good about and say you know what alright like we were right the traits were there let's see somebody coach him up
1: no doubt uh, we are at the hour mark so probably want to uh, I don't think we want to jump into the whole Dylan Brooks and Landon Jackson discussion right
0: yeah There's we can we can save we can save our Tennessee love for uh, for another day
1: hell I man might just be better they, they keep getting a new guy right more day. to talk about yeah So that'll do it for the Barton and Bud Show. Uh, Please make sure you give us those five-star reviews on iTunes. We're available, like I said, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Show us the love and tell your friends if you're enjoying it, and we'll, we'll keep them coming.